Aren't you glad this morning that you have a faithful, pursuing, heavenly husband who will not give up on you until you're his forever? We see that over and over again in the Song of Solomon. It's the book that we've been considering these last several weeks together, and we've got a few more weeks in it to go leading up to Easter. I want to begin with another quote-unquote famous Christian who saw value in the Song of Solomon, Hudson Taylor, who, as many of you know, was a well-known missionary to China. and He had a very high regard for the Song of Solomon and wrote even a small book on it called Union and Communion. And in that book, he writes the following. Well may this book be called the Song of Songs. There is no song like it. Read, read or write, it brings a gladness to the heart which is far beyond the joy of earthly things as heaven is higher than earth. It has been well said that this is a song which grace alone can teach and experience alone can learn. Our Savior, speaking of the union of the branch with the vine, says, These things I have spoken to you that my joy might remain in you and your joy might be full. And beloved disciple writing of him who was from the beginning, who was with the Father and who was manifested unto us in order that we might share the fellowship which he enjoyed, also wrote these things right unto you that your, I write unto you that your joy may be full. Union with Christ and abiding in Christ, Taylor says, what do they not secure? Peace, perfect peace, rest, constant rest, answers to all our prayers, victory over all our foes, pure, holy living, ever-increasing fruitfulness. All, all of these are the glad outcome of abiding in Christ. And to deepen this union, to make one more constant in this abiding, is the practical use of this precious book. So what is Hudson Taylor saying? He's saying the Song of Solomon is given to us in part to increase our understanding of Christ's love for us and to increase our love for Christ. And so that's why we're spending time in it these days. We come to the third through the fourth chapter this morning. And just to survey the terrain that we've been on so far, I'll remind us of what we've seen so far in this song. Chapter 1, we began with a woman expressing her passionate desire to be with the man of her dreams. And she wanted him so badly, and he wanted her just as badly, and they both wanted the blessing that would come only with pursuing this relationship in the right way at the right time. And so they sought out a community of godly people, the daughters of Jerusalem, they're called in this particular song, who cautioned them to observe proper boundaries. And at times it was frustrating as these lovers increased in their desire to be together, but they have remained pure, and yet their relationship keeps moving closer and closer together. And then in chapter 2, last week we saw springtime had come, and it was the season for love, and it was time to move this relationship forward. But the woman righteously reminded her husband-to-be that they were not ready to consummate their relationship, and so she sends him on his way. But then she has a dream at the beginning of chapter 3, a nightmare where she fears she has lost her beloved forever. The man had returned to the city while she remained in the countryside. And in her dream, she goes and searches for the one whom her soul loves. And she finds him, and they're reunited, and they're determined not to let each other go. And so we come now to the dream giving way to reality. 
She's reunited with her shepherd king, and the wedding bells have begun to chime. The days of courting have come to an end, and the time for their marriage is upon us. So this morning in chapter 3, verse 6 through chapter 5, verse 1, we are going to witness this time of waiting being over as the wedding day comes and the wedding night begins. Three points this morning. First of all, the glorious groom. In chapter 3, verse 6, the groom begins to approach. What is that coming up from the wilderness? Like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the fragrant powders of a merchant. Now, before we get into the way Solomon is describing himself as this husband-to-be coming out of the wilderness, we need to just pause and think about what's being communicated by this wilderness theme. You know, if you know your scriptures well, that the wilderness is a rich biblical theme that immediately evokes ideas of the Exodus, right? God delivering his people out of slavery in Egypt, bringing them into the wilderness where he established a covenant with them to be their God and that they would be his people. But it also communicates the difficulty and the wandering and the hardship of living in the wilderness. It wasn't an easy time for the people of Israel. We think of Elijah in 1 Kings 19 being depressed and dejected in the wilderness. We think of John the Baptist in Matthew 3 crying out in the wilderness. We think of Jesus in Matthew 4 being tempted by the devil in the wilderness. These these all experienced ravaging and disappointing circumstances as a result of sin's curse. Alongside, in the wilderness, in each of those circumstances, the wonderful provision of God as he met Jesus and Elijah and John the Baptist in different ways in their own troubles. So we learn that even in the wilderness, the Lord provides. And that's what's being communicated here. This couple has been in a bit of a wilderness. There's been intense desire for one another, but they've been unable to have that desire fulfilled because it has not been time for love yet. The marriage day had not come. This woman, as we know from chapter 1, had lived through a number of difficult and trying circumstances. She was a Cinderella of sorts who lived in a home where she was forced to hard labor, no mothers in the picture. Her brothers seemed to be abusing her in some sort of, or at least taking advantage of her. And she grows dark and, and, and due to working in the sun in the vineyard all day long, is unable to take care of herself in any sort of womanly, feminine, beautiful way. And yet throughout all these trials, there has been this husband who has pursued her, that loves her, that sees her as beautiful, that desires to be with her. And so these verses that follow provide... God's provision for this girl as she comes to her wedding day. Notice verse 7. Behold, it's the litter of Solomon. What's coming up from the wilderness? The litter of Solomon. Around it are 60 mighty men, some of the mighty men of Israel, all of them wearing swords and expert in war, each with his sword at his thigh against terror by night. So what's coming up from the wilderness? Why, it's the king and his groomsmen. The vision of the columns of smoke that are burning with myrrh and frankincense and every fragrant powder, no expense being spared, is meant to communicate the richness of what's taking place. No expense is being spared as Solomon comes up out of the wilderness to rescue his bride. And all of this is coming from what's told, what we're told is Solomon's litter, his royal carriage. 
and it's surrounded by 60 warriors from the mighty of Israel, twice the number that accompanied Solomon's father, King David, in 2 Samuel 23. These are elite soldiers. These are his personal bodyguards who are armed and ready for action at any time. They are warriors from the mighty of Israel, all of them skilled with swords and trained in warfare, and each having his sword at his side to guard against the terror of the night. This woman, who once felt so alone and so unprotected, will never know that day any longer. She has the king and all of his resources to guard and protect her. They are all hers now. She'll never need to fear again as she rests under the watch care and protection of her shepherd king and his noble army. And these royal bodyguards are a sort of pledge and promise of protection for her that will accompany their marriage until death does them part. Now, brides and bri- bridesmaids and bridegrooms, or groomsmen, we are all too familiar with in, in wedding ceremonies. They're there for a reason. Ideally, bridesmaids and groomsmen are godly men and women who are there to support a married couple in the vows that they make. And even symbolically, in the wedding ceremony as a whole, they serve like a holy hedge of protection around the couple, don't they? Keeping them focused on each other, inside the circle of matrimony, and keeping out anybody who might try to destroy their marriage. And brothers and sisters, this is who we are as a church for one another. We are called to keep the bride focused on the bridegroom. We're not there to draw attention to ourselves. We're there to help others point their attention to Jesus. This means we go to war for each other's souls. We pray for one another. We speak the truth in love to one another. We encourage one another. We admonish one another. We hold one another accountable. We fight for a pure and regenerate church membership. We discipline the unrepentant. We help each other to fight sin, all in an effort to catch the little foxes that might spoil the vineyard. And we have a shepherd king who has promised us that he will do just the same. Notice how Solomon is described here in verses 9 and 10. King Solomon made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon. He made its posts of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple. Its interior was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Now this is a magnificent scene to be sure. Here comes the groom. But it pales in comparison to the wedding processional that it anticipates, which is where the true son of David will come for his bride. In Revelation 19, when King Jesus, the shepherd king, greater than David or Solomon, returns from heaven to get us as his bride, his wife, it's said that it will be a great day of gladness. Romans, or Revelation 19:7. let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. He will descend from heaven riding on a white horse. On his head will not be a simple crown like Solomon, but many diadems because he's not only the king of Israel, he's the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords. The armies of heaven will accompany our bridegroom, not just 60 mighty men. And he will shepherd the nations, not just Israel, with an iron scepter. On that day, as Jonathan Edwards writes, the church shall be brought to the full enjoyment of her bridegroom, having all tears wiped away, 
from her eyes, and there shall be no distance or absence. She shall then be brought to the entertainments of an eternal wedding feast, and to dwell forever with her bridegroom, to dwell eternally in his embraces. Then Christ will give her his loves, and she shall drink her fill. She shall swim in the ocean of his love. And so we're told the result of this particular wedding in verse 11. Go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. And so we get this rich party atmosphere as the king approaches his bridegroom coming out of the wilderness for her to be married to her on this day. And he spared no expense to have his bride. So having looked at the glorious groom, let's now turn our attention, rightly so, to the beautiful bride in the first seven verses of chapter 4. At the beginning of chapter 4, we have our attention shifted and moved away from Solomon and all his glory to the bride. And right at the center of this song, in verses 1 through 15 of chapter 4, which form the literary center of the entire book, we meet a beautiful bride who's adorned for her husband. Not even Solomon in all his splendor was arrayed like her. The first seven verses are the husband detailing the specific beauty of the bride he sees as he comes out of the wilderness and approaches her. Notice how he begins. He begins with her eyes and with her hair. He says, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats sleeping down the slopes of Gilead. Goat hair. It's one way to encourage your bride-to-be, fellas. But no, this was a picture of grace. It was a picture of elegance. To see a goat, maybe sitting down on the ground is not something too special, but to see, a, to see a goat leaping down the slopes of Gilead with its hair flowing in the wind, that's what he's comparing his bride to. He moves from her eyes and her hair to her teeth. Look at verse 2. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up for them washing. She's got clean teeth. It's good. All of which bear twins, and not one of them has lost its young. She got all her teeth, guys. <laughs> so he comes up from the wilderness, looks in the woman's eyes, says, baby, I'm so glad you got all your teeth. <laughs> in a day of lacking serious dentistry and things like that, that was no small accomplishment, especially a woman who'd come from the background she had come from. And then he moves down from her eyes and her hair, noticing her teeth. Then he begins to view her lips and cheeks. Notice verse 3. Your lips are like a scarlet thread and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Then he moves to her neck. Verse 4. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built in rows of stone. And on it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. So he's starting with her eyes. He moves to her hair. He moves to her teeth. He looks at her lips and cheeks. He looks at her neck, and then he moves down to her breasts. He says in verse 5, Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. And that's as far as this bridegroom goes. And it's as far as he needs to go right now. He's described seven parts of his beloved's body. Her eyes, her hair, her teeth, her lips, her cheeks, her neck, her breasts. And since seven is the biblical number of completion and perfection, he said all that needs to be said. He summed it up in verse 7 when he says, You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. 
He said in verse 1, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. In this text, we see a bride whose husband views her as perfect, as flawless, with no imperfections whatsoever. If only such a bride really existed. The fact is, however, she does. She exists in the people of God called the church, a people God has redeemed and purchased with his own blood, according to Acts 20, verse 28. Made new in Jesus Christ, our divine bridegroom, we as the people of God know that he committed to make us holy, cleansing us with the washing of water by the word, that in so doing he might present to the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like it, but holy and blameless. Oh, for the day when our bridegroom will say, you're altogether beautiful, my love. There's no flaw in you. And he will say those things to us. He will speak those things over us, noticing everything about us as he formed us in our mother's wombs and he redeemed us to be his own. A wedding dress from World War II beautifully illustrates this truth. Toward the end of the war, Claude Hensinger jumped from the cockpit of his flaming B-29 bomber and safely floated to the ground. And after landing, he used his parachute as a pillow and a blanket to keep warm while he waited to be rescued. And when he made it back home, Claude proposed to his girlfriend, Ruth, and a few years later, he offered his life-giving parachute as the fabric that would create her wedding dress. Is this not how Christ has loved us, dear ones? He's created our wedding dress out of the fabric of war, his own battle that he fought. He worked out a righteousness that we didn't earn to clothe us in a righteousness that he freely provides. This is what Revelation 7 says. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So yes, our deeds matter. But they are the root, not the fruit. We are his beautiful bride, his darling, with no flaw at all because of the price he paid to make us perfect. And this is how Christ sees us, as altogether beautiful, as clothed in the gown he provides. Malcolm McLean picks up on this idea when he writes, We should picture Jesus drawing near to each of his people and enjoying his assessment of each aspect of their lives. What beauties does each child of God permanently possess? There's the beauty of justification, the standing of forgiveness and acceptance that every believer has before, the God, before God the judge. The delightful obedience of Jesus is imputed to us and his lovely life lived on behalf of sinners. The beautiful atoning death of Jesus by which he paid the penalty for our sins, giving to us the attractiveness of forgiveness. Every Christian is also marked by the beauty of permanently, permanently possessing the Holy Spirit. Thinking of this divine visit may cause us to feel apprehensive, but we should not do so because the Lord Jesus does not draw near to condemn or discourage us. Instead, he draws near to savor the work of divine grace in our souls. He is delighted by our love for him, our desire for him, our willingness to serve him. And further, he is aware of our sense of sinfulness, and he desires to assure us that he still delights in us and desires our company. That's one of the things that we're that is being communicated to us by the way this groom approaches his bride and what he says about her when he sees her. So having looked at the glorious groom, the beautiful bride, we come now thirdly and finally to the wedding night. Beginning at chapter 4, verse 8. What's left? The groom has come. 
The bride has come. They've seen each other. They've married each other. Now is the marriage bed. Look at chapter 4, verse 6. Until the death breathes, the day breathes, and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. Verse 8, come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amana, from the peak of Sinir and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. In other words, come be with me. Come be safe with me. Come be with me. Until now, these two lovers have protected their purity, and rather than exploring each other or experimenting with each other, they've safeguarded each other and their sexuality. And this helps to explain why the groom compares his bride to a private garden that has never been unlocked before. Look at chapter 4, verse 12. A garden locked is my sister, my bride, a spring locked, a fountain sealed. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all choice fruits, henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all choice spices, a garden fountain, a well of living water, and flowing streams from Lebanon. She hasn't slept with anyone, not even him. And this makes her even more beautiful in his eyes. But now she gives her full consent and she even initiates intimacy by inviting her beloved to claim her body as his garden of delight. Look at verse 16. Arise, awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind, blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. And then he says, let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. In addition to describing it as her own, she calls it his. The bride voluntarily gives herself to her new husband, even calling on the winds to blow on her garden so that it might be even more enticing to him than it already is. In fact, the word which the woman uses for the awakening of the wind is the same as that she's used all along in chapter 2, verse 6, and chapter 3, verse 5, as not awakening love before its time. Now's the time, and let it awake. The time has come for love to be awakened, and awakened it surely is. And the groom doesn't hesitate to enter this unlocked garden. He says in chapter 5, verse 1, I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. And then the others say, eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. So the garden which has been unlocked and sealed for the woman's entire life is now opened, but only to her husband and only with her permission. Phil Riken describes the significance of these verses. In the, he says, in the two verses which form the exact center of the Song of Solomon, the climax, so to speak, with 111 lines before and 111 lines after, the Bible brings us to the threshold of the bridal suite. Unlike our own culture, which usually brings sex way too far out into the open, the Song of Solomon takes us right to the edge. We get close enough to sense the breathtaking beauty of sexual love and covenant marriage, and then the groom gently shuts the door and his bride pulls down the shade, and while we stand outside in the rest of the bridal party 
and join their friends and family in pronouncing the benediction of the covenant community. Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. God enjoys their enjoyment. He loves their lovemaking. He takes pleasure in their pleasure in each other. He is their cheering section, affirming all that takes place here as good and wholesome and proper and ultimately glorifying the God who created sex by receiving and using the gift in the way that he attended. Do you think God is anti-sex? He made it. He invented it. And he loves it when it is done according to his plan. So, he commands them in this, you've exercised restraint up until now. Leave all that behind. Get rid of that restraint. Nothing in this garden is to be refused if it's enjoyed together. The couple is supposed to get drunk. God's telling them, get drunk. On love. Drink deeply of this gift I have given you. God does not put boundaries on marital intimacy, friends, to limit your enjoyment. He puts boundaries on it to maximize it. He's not a killjoy. He is so for you, he's more for you than anyone else could be. And part of what makes this joy possible is that this song is not just about sex, but about the context for sex and the character of it. Notice, the context of this makes all the difference to their enjoyment of it, doesn't it? Here, at the center of the Song of Songs, where a loving relationship is consummated through sexual intimacy, the lover repeatedly refers to his beloved as his bride. This word appears in verse 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12, and then again at the beginning of chapter 5. Bride, 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 bride. Demonstrating beyond all doubt that this song is a wedding song. This terminology places everything that the book says about human sexuality securely within the hot and holy boundaries of divinely appointed marriage. This is the only place for intimate expression. One man, one woman, heterosexual covenant marriage for life. Second, not only does the context make a difference in their joy, the character of their lovemaking makes all the difference too. See, sex isn't just about bodies to these people, to this bride and this groom. It's about whole persons. Marriage is a deep spiritual friendship. Notice the word that the groom pairs with the bride in verses 9 and 10. Look at chapter 4 again, verses 9 and 10. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. Back at verse 9. You've captured my heart, my sister, my bride. You've captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. See, he called his lover not only his bride, but he calls her his sister. Phil Riken again. This term of endearment connotes the kind of intimacy that we often see in a brother and sister who are close in age and understand each other better than anyone else in the world, even better than their own parents. The relationship at the center of the Song of Songs is not a sexual hookup. It's a spiritual friendship, and this is essential to their joy. He's not talking about his physical sister. He's talking about someone he views like a sister. 
someone who's a deep companion to him. Not just his bride, but his sister, his friend, his partner. See, when the man and the woman in Genesis 2.24, in the first marriage, Adam and Eve, become one flesh in the original marriage, it indicated much more than mere physical intimacy. It's the union of the body, yes, but it's also the union of the soul in which two people are united in every aspect of their lives. And from then on, they're no longer two separate individuals, but they're one flesh, they're one new body in which mutual care, companionship, respect, and self-giving are the logical consequence. And this is as far as this song goes, which is what makes it suitable for audiences of all ages, even with a somewhat hard PG-13 rating. This love poetry is certainly erotic, but it's chaste. It's evocative without being denigrating. It's candid without being pornographic. It's expressive, yet it's restrained. It's suggestive, but it's not indecent. There is nothing manipulative or sinful here. Nothing tawdry, nothing vulgar, nothing selfish, nothing manipulative, nothing abusive. It's just all beautiful and pure and innocent. And for some, this morning, this sermon resurrects old hurts and wounds because we long for this kind of love and we can't seem to find it. For others, this sermon makes us more jaded and feeds our cynicism. Mark, you say, this is the real world. This is poetry for a reason. Come off your heavenly cloud and get down into the world of real marriage, would you? This is hallmark. This is not the reality of my marriage at all. And so you resonate, perhaps, with Ian Duguid's words when he says, It is true that marriage can be great with many pleasures and delights. It's a wonderful blessing and a gift from God. Yet marriage can also be very hard and painful as two sinners crash against each other, bruising and wounding each other with their competing idolatries. There may be times when the bride's beautiful mouth utters hurtful and harsh words. There may be times when the husband's hurtful and harsh ways bring hot tears to her dove-like eyes. Yet this hyperbolic language is actually intended to lift our gaze beyond any human relationship. Marriage, even the best of marriages, doesn't really transport the bride from the wilderness to the promised land. Only one marriage can do that. So that's why this song is called The Song of Songs. This is a song of songs, and it's a beautiful one between this husband and this bride. But the awakening of love in this song, when we read things like this and our hearts through the poetic imagery begin to get drawn out into this feeling of love that these two have for one another, this is meant to awaken us to the love that only God can give us. The Bible gives us this picture of this perfect marriage that was just so perfect from the beginning, wasn't it? Sweet Cinderella story of this virgin bride and this king who came to rescue her and he came out of wilderness. He was so rich and he rescued her out of poverty and they went to the marriage suite and boy, they had a grand old time. And we think, that stuff's for fairy tales. But brothers and sisters, this is what we're going to experience in a far greater measure than you can ever possibly imagine. Because all of this is meant to awaken our sense of longing for Christ himself. Sex is a blessing from God, but it's also a bridge to God. 
What I mean is that even the highest pleasures and the sweetest intimacies that we experience in this life are designed to leave us wanting something more. The incomplete satisfaction of marriage and in, that marriage and intimacy give us is intentional. You're not doing it wrong. Marriage isn't God. Sex isn't God. God is God. They are only the scent of the flower we have not found, the echo of music we have not heard, and news from a country we have not visited, as C.S. Lewis said. Marriage and intimacy on earth is but a shadow of the real substance in heaven, and this is why neither marriage nor sex exist in their present form in the age to come. Because nothing in our present experience lives, lives up to the kind of perfection that we will experience there. We live with a certain amount of dissatisfaction all the time, even in the best and happiest of marriage moments. There remains disappointment, however. The Bible also shows us the way things are meant to be and the, things, the way that they will one day be. We desperately want everything to be right in the world. We wish we had relationships that were marked by this kind of intense reciprocal love. And this song is reminding us that you're not going to find it here. The song comes after Ecclesiastes for a reason. You're not going to get this here, no matter how many boyfriends or girlfriends you have or don't have. No matter how many marriages you have or have not had. You're not going to find it here. This is a clue that we were made for eternity. The invitation of this song the longings for intimacy that are stoked by this song are whispers from God himself to come away and be his love. There is a God above with passion and love in his eyes for us. And he has offered intimate, infinite joy with him to us and has set his sights on winning our hearts and captivating them with and for himself alone. And someday, on that day when the Father presents us as a bride to his Son, we will enter into the joy of our Master, and we will enter into the joy we have always longed for and never experienced. We will share in the deepest intimate friendship with Jesus that our hearts have always craved. In closing, Solomon presents the king who approached a locked garden do you know why we experience love in this way in this world? Because we've been locked out of the garden, brothers and sisters. When our parents sinned in the Garden of Eden, that garden was locked. Cherubim were stationed at the door to not have any access back in to the tree of life. So our whole life is a wilderness. We live wandering around looking for love in all the wrong places. Meanwhile, there's one man who holds the key to unlock the garden, this great shepherd king, heavenly bridegroom, and we won't give him no mind. He's the key that unlocks the garden. And until you come to him, who alone holds the key, you'll never know true love. You'll never know. Because true love can't be found horizontally. True love at its best always points vertically. You're loved best by people who point you vertical. We're loved best by being reminded that love isn't found horizontally. It's found vertically. And we're loved best when we realize that Jesus said he was the gate 
Jesus said he was the door. Jesus said he was the way. Jesus said he was the truth. Jesus said he was the life. Young people, some of you are on the cusp of leaving your home. You're growing up. One day you're going to leave. And you might be wondering, I've been locked kind of in this garden my whole life. This little church garden. I'd like to go out there. I'd like to see what that thing offers. Go ahead and ask. Don't wait. You don't have to wait. You got 200 people in this room who are older than you who can tell you what that's like. And some of them spent a lot more time outside the garden than you have, than you ever would, and did more things than you would ever dare think of doing. And they would tell you, this is where the garden is. Don't go outside the garden. It's wilderness out there. It's desert out there. There's no life out there. Yeah, it drink, yeah you, there's, some, there's a little bit of oasis now and then, but you're sucking and you're drinking and you're drinking, and a minute you turn away, you're thirsty again. And you just go from one little pool to another, dragging yourself through the desert when you could live in the garden of God's grace. So come to Christ. The only way back into God's garden paradise is through King Jesus. He alone holds the key. The God of the universe so loved you that he sent his only son to come into the world to die for you and to rise for you. You matter to him. He cares for you. If you've never entered into that relationship with him, he invites you to come to him now, broken and messed up as you may be or may not yet be. He commands you to come, bow your heart before him, and enter into the love that he created you to experience, the love that he has for you. Will you receive that forgiveness and grace that he offers you in Jesus? Will you trust him today? If you will, you will hear him pronouncing over you, behold, you're beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. I've desired you from the foundation of the world, and now my eyes have seen you. And I claim you as my own. And brothers and sisters, for those of us in Christ who are walking with him and the embers die down and the, the days go by, the weeks go by, the months go by, and we're tempted to settle into to a ho-hum marriage with our king. There's a balance here. We're not home yet. And we don't see him face to face. We are in the wilderness. In a sense, we ain't ever going to experience chapter 3 and chapter 4 with Jesus until we get there. But we can experience the down payments and the foretastes and the echoes that he is pleased to give us in this life, which will be more than enough, such that we would say, Lord, I've had enough. It's good that I'm here, but no more. The Lord wants to give us that. The Lord wants to give us so much more of himself than sometimes we desire to have. So let's long for him. And where we don't have longing, let's long to long. And where we don't desire, let's desire to desire. And so let's pray that as we close. Lord, we long to long for you. We desire to desire you. We would love to love you more than we do. You would have us be, as Paul said to the Corinthian church, uh, an undefiled virgin, pure and ready for Christ. And we confess that in and of ourselves, we're not. But we thank you that that's not the bride you're searching for. You're searching for a bride that is dark and lovely. You're searching for a bride that's been sinned against and sinned. And you would have no other because there's no other you could have. 
And so, Lord, thank you for making us your own. Thank you for making us your bride. Thank you for the anticipation of the wedding day that this passage prefigures for us. For those of us who experience marriage in this life and those, who, those of us who don't, Lord, we are all, if we are yours, married to Christ and looking forward to the great marriage day and the wedding feast to come. Hasten that day, Lord, and keep us longing and waiting and looking to the eastern sky until you appear. Help our love to not grow cold. Help us to burn with intense passion for our Lord Jesus Christ, for our bridegroom. Lord, may you be our all, and may, when all around our soul gives way, may you then be all our hope and our stay. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.